You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 20. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about the Seneca Iroquois National Museum. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge the Nooch or Ute peoples on whose treaty lands I'm recording today, as well as the many other tribes with ancestral and cultural connections to this land, including the fact that this land is part of the ancestral Puebloan homeland and the Dineta. On today's episode, we have David L. George Shango Jr., acting director of the Seneca Iroquois National Museum. Dave is a lifetime resident of the Seneca Nation of Indians Allegheny Territory. He graduated from St. Lawrence University with a BA in anthropology. As a teenager, his first employment was with the Seneca Iroquois National Museum, S-I-N-M, as a part-time tour guide after school. During college, he did several internships with SINM. For one of these internships, he participated in inquiring about the sacred and religious items in the museum's collections from across the United States, which needed to be repatriated under NAGPRA, or the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act of 1990. Dave has worked as an adjunct professor at Jamestown Community College, teaching physical and cultural anthropology. He's also worked as the staff archaeologist for the Seneca Nation of Indians Tribal Historic Preservation Office, or TIPO. He was the first archivist of the Seneca Nation, and he became the first chairperson of the Society of American Archivists Native American Archives Roundtable in 2005. In 2007, Dave served in the SAA's mentor program and the task force on the protocols for Native American archival materials. In 2009, he received the Excellence in Archives Award from the National Conference for Tribal Archives, Libraries, and Museums. Most recently, he was employed with the Men's Cultural and Ritual Language Program, a program dedicated to ensuring the ongoing practice of traditional teachings, arts, knowledge, and the living cultures of our longhouse ways. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you. You almost can't go 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 with this right in the game when they said it. I uh, greeted you all in my language, uh, said hello, thank you for y'all being here. And you guys just had a very exciting event at the Seneca Iroquois National Museum. So do you want to start out real quick talking about what just happened? Yeah, uh, this last Saturday, about three days ago, we um, transitioned to the new cultural center. And we're just one of two departments that are in there. Uh, it's the museum, but also our uh, Seneca Nation Archives Department. And so uh, the reason we picked the date was that the current museum had been founded in uh, August 1st, 1977. And so we went with August again because it would be 40 years in the old place. The 41st year, we started in a new building. And so it was quite successful. Um, we, had over, we had around 1,500 people, a lot of people speaking uh, from our president, treasurer, our board, myself, and the archivists for the Seneca Nation. So, um, and we, as we uh, have transitioned, our new uh, building is three times bigger than our current, uh, our past building now. That's, I guess it's not our current building. <laughs> But uh, it's all made state-of-the-art um, 
Uh, we put in three times as much fiber optics as we thought we would need because we were looking at doing like e-tours and uh, really using technology. Uh, the building is all, uh, has everything from humidity control to the lights and security. Um, and so I'm really excited because it's the first time in our history of our nation that we've had such a facility that can take care of everything with our history in our collections. Yeah. Uh, we, we even have um, a contaminated area and contaminated uh, lab area. And so in case something happens, we can just bring somebody here or have somebody on staff uh, to tend to those things. And can you, I'm not sure how many of our listeners are, are familiar with, with what you're talking about, but can you talk about why a contamination area might be necessary? Oh, over the years, uh, sometimes some of the papers and some of the items might have gotten mold on them. And so we have to quarantine them away from the other items so it doesn't contaminate the whole collection. As a group of collections, we have just a little under 11,000 items. Uh, But if I count every share, every pottery share and stuff, then we're responsible for more than a million items. So... Uh, we do our best to make sure that um, anything that is contaminated, uh, maybe it's like a corn husk or maybe it's a basket. Uh, we usually work with uh, Buff State, um, their conservation department, and work with their grad students to tend to things in our collection. Uh, but right now with the new facility, we can quarantine those things off and hire a conservator to come right in to uh, repair those items. And I mean, I don't know if you guys have had that issue, but I know that some of the tribes out here have had issues with things like um, previous museum work using substances like arsenic for preservation and and that that also has been a contamination issue. Is that something that you guys have faced? Yes, we have the same issues with that. Uh, Some of our sacred masks have been uh, contaminated with arson. Uh, some of our other things that, especially that are made out of wood, were contaminated with arson. Uh, luckily, uh, we did try to minimize that and hired uh, a person, like I said, working with Buff State and their conservation department. You can never take it all out. I mean, it's ingrained into it. And so, but we try to minimize it, any uh, the chemicals. And uh, so, that's one of the new things, too, is that. With us having a state-of-the-art building, uh, we have everything, like I said, from lighting to humidity to temperature control within the building. So uh, we've been uh, discussing a lot of things with uh, different museums and historical societies in the United in uh, New York and in Pennsylvania. And so we're looking at um, repatriating a lot of things because. Uh, some of our counterparts that they're not as fortunate as we are now and don't really have the facilities to take care of, uh, properly take care of things. And so um, the building we just are moving into, our, uh, we're fortunate that our uh, Seneca Nation was able to pay $18 million or put up $18 million for this building. Wow. And so we didn't uh, borrow any money from anywhere else. It just came from our own um, hard work and uh, financial responsibility that the tribal members or the council 
and uh, executives do to make sure that we have money in order to do this. Wow. And so I don't know if anybody knows uh, Kurt Jordan from Cornell University, but we have a contract with him uh, for his Tony Reed and for his White Plains archaeological site. And so probably by uh, before the end of this year, we'll end up having that collection repatriated back to us. And so to me, that's really exciting. Um, that's moreover by Rochester, New York, where the Ganundagant uh, uh, was a town. And uh, the site that he's looking at um, is a time when it's supposed to be really poor uh, for my ancestors. And you can see that these towns uh, were not poor. Uh, and that it was, um, I guess it's sort of like now, you know, people say that we're in a recession or we're in a depression, but people that lived through the 1940s, you know what I mean? When there was a real depression, wouldn't consider you know, us in a depression. So, uh, I mean, there's a few other things from the site, uh, that I'm interested in, uh, looking at more when we get them back. Um. I didn't know that our um, my ancestors had a uh, they worked with glass and so they had gotten some rum bottles and some other things uh, that were glass that was from the French and they manipulated them and made them into jewelry and so I had no idea until mm -hmm. the site that we even had a history of working with glass. How long ago was this excavation? Uh, it just, um, within the last five years, it's been going on. Okay. And so his grad students have been, uh, putting all the things together with the metadata and all that that's mm -hmm. going on. And so when it transfers over to us, then it fits right into our system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And was this something that the, the tribe was working on with him? Yeah. Uh, we've had, uh, some of our students go up there. Uh, high school students just to see what an archaeological site looks like. Um, as you you know mentioned, you know part of my background is going to St. Lawrence and having an anthropology degree. So uh, we always try to encourage that with our uh, students to see what our ancestors did and how traditions have changed or kept the same. And so even some of our uh, People have gone to Cornell and are on the site. So, okay, before I cut you off, you were saying you were talking about the glass, and then you were you mentioned the pottery and yeah, it's just the the things that they're working on and the the things that they're finding through the pots is helping us with our traditions and looking at how we can maybe bring things back that we sort of forgot. You know, that was a tradition mm -hmm. and. Maybe retooling it. Um, it's like, you know, technology changes, people change with technology, and they just want to see how they uh, incorporated some of the things that they did in their everyday life. Going and being in anthropology, sometimes, you know, anthropologists will say, well, they're not really native anymore because they're using um, metal instead of using uh, stones. And I don't believe that right. at all. Right. I mean, if we look at today's society and stuff, you know, like my church probably was made in China, but it doesn't make me Chinese <laughs> or less native. Yeah, you know, my uh -huh. car is, you know, you know, and 
So just because I'm driving a Japanese car, you know, it doesn't make my traditions any less. I mean, or just like anybody else, right. you know? Right. Well, I'm certainly not doing the the same things that my ancestors did a couple generations back. So I don't know why the expectation for anybody else would be any different. You know, I'm not wearing the same clothes and um, keeping my head covered and um, doing all those things, eating kosher, you know, <laughs> People, cultures, yeah. cultures adapt and they're flexible. And I, I think it's a sign of resilience, not lack. That's for sure. Yeah. Within our own people, we always feel as though we have adapted to different things. And even like with our language, there's stories about a huge grease grease. Uh, nowadays, we call a grease grease a pig, but uh, sounds like in these stories, it's probably uh, an animal that was 20,000 years ago. And now we realize that through some archaeological sites that they found some mammoth mm-hmm. by uh, Randolph. And so when uh, my ancestors saw the hog, uh, the boar, you know, it has the tusk. And uh, so we're using the the same word that they use for a mammoth for a pig now. Hmm. And so I think that's, you know, interesting in itself. And that's part of what we've done with the new cultural center. uh, And it's teaching our uh, youth that our language is old. And just because we changed the way we look at an animal, you know, we're still using those names. There's quite a few things that are like that. Wow. Ta is what we uh, traditionally would call a, uh, a certain kind of dragon that was white. Uh, it's sort of like the never ending story. I don't know if you ever watched <laughs> that, but there's a dragon there that looks like a dog or looks like a lion. And so Ta is what we use for a lion because it's about the mane. Uh. The hair it has stuff. So wow, interesting. How common is it for people at Seneca or Koida to speak the language? Um, well, there was a time when the language was going down, just like everybody right, else, right. because of the boarding schools. Right. And uh, we've had a more of a <clears throat> resurgence lately. Um, my wife now is a appellate court judge, but. Before she was elected in November, she worked in a, um, an emerging program. So from 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock, uh, every day she would speak uh, our own native language. And she got to be so proficient in it that even now uh, we both dream in the, the language. Wow. Uh, sometimes wow. it's in Seneca, sometimes it's in English. I think I forgot to mention in my bio that I used to work for Gwanda High School and I used to teach uh, our native language. And so uh, sometimes the kids would ask me, the students would ask me, well, how come you can't, you know, translate this word or translate this? And I said, well, it's like any other languages. Some things just don't translate into each right. other right. for example the word just how do you explain just you know that just happened that's just not right you know you know how to use them but explaining them is totally different plus sometimes uh like for myself uh using a native language is um much more descriptive and we have spatial recognitions that, that, that we don't uh have in english 
And so to me, speaking English is sort of like watching a 2D, 2D movie where speaking native is more like watching a 3D movie. <laughs> and that's the best I could explain how that is. You just can tell like how far something is close to you, above, uh-huh. top, you know, if it's laying down. Um, and so it's much more rich. It's like um, the IMAX version. <laughs> well, even like the building, we named it after uh, a head faith keeper, a uh, spiritual leader within our community. His name was, uh, English name was Richard Johnny John. Uh, his Indian name was Anoso Grande, and that means uh, like an opening into the house. And and so when I was uh, giving the speech last Saturday, I said, well, we're opening our culture to the world. And uh, that was part of the reason we named the building after him. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in English, like we have, uh, we call it cultural center, but we don't really have that mm-hmm. kind of concept of culture and the same as anthropology so i had thought about it i mean we have like an indian way but it's not not the same as anthropology mm-hmm. and so i thought in my like if i was describing it in my language it would be like is what we call ourselves the cop means that kind type nicole means here in this realm and then Hendwawa don't talk gay. The gay makes it in a certain spot, um, almost like GPS it. And the Hendwawa Genta is like taking a fishing hook and throwing it from this realm into the spiritual realm and pulling into this realm what it means to be a Nondawaka. So that's how I would describe it in my language and how like I said, to me that's more of a three D perception of how to I can picture it better in my mind anyways. I'm just saying cultural. Right. There's a lot more depth to it in in the original. Yes. All right. Well, we are amazingly already at our first break. (laughs) Um, So we will be back here in a few moments. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS, or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. This network is listener-supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. 
right, we are back. Okay, so uh, I wanted to make sure that we we started out talking about the museum and the museum opening since that was a, a big, exciting event that just happened this last Saturday, which, let's see, that's August 4th, although the rest of you won't be hearing this until later in the month. But now I want to go back and, and give everybody a little bit more of a background on, on who you are and, and how you got here. So you mentioned that you got an anthropology BA. What inspired you to do that? How did you end up in this field at all? Oh, like it says in my bio, you know, I started working at the museum when I was 14. And so uh, I like culture. I like listening to people, why they do stuff and why they don't do it this way and uh, interacting with people. And uh, I mean, I've heard a, an Indian joke about um, the reason that natives say how to non-natives is when they first, when the non-natives first came here, they were asking the natives, well, how do you do this? Or how do you do that? Or how did that happen? <laughs> and so my ancestors got together and said, well, that how word must be really significant to them. And so <laughs> they thought, well, next time we see them, we'll say how. There so, you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, That's just a little native sense of humor, you know? Just Yes. Uh, but that's to me, you know, uh, part of the reason why I got into this. It was, you know, people would come in, in our community and try to change us or think that uh, they were helping us by changing who we are and uh, making us more advanced. And so as I looked at things more uh, through anthropology and we did things that were probably more advanced than other people realize. And so some of the things that is coming about, you know, um, and to me, that's a good way. And having this new cultural center, we're just showcasing some of these uh, ways that we deal with the earth. You know, for example, like if we look at what is it, uh, genetics, right? They usually go, they have to go through the mother in order to do your genes to see who you're related to. Well, our client system Mm -hmm. on the women. And so we decide, you know, it's in the blood or it's in the genes. And so um, we don't really look at the, the men's side too much, but it's more of the, the women that we look at. And for us, you know, women are the backbone of our society. And so uh, there's other things like our Canonia, our Thanksgiving address, and we give thanks to everything that's in nature. But it's also our environmental philosophy. And so when we're looking at how to deal with nature, uh, we realize that uh, we're a part of nature. Uh, even in our um, thought process about like a twice hat, the soul, the spirit, part of us is from the physical part of the earth. Part of it's from the sky world, the heaven, I guess, if you wanted to call it that. But also uh, a part of us is linked to the spirit of this planet. And so when I worked in men's uh, traditional society there, uh, before becoming the museum director, you know, we talked about uh, Red Mars, a graphic novel, and natives being in, uh, born in Mars. And we said, well, would they be ungui, uh, which in our language means like a human being. 
and we ended up thinking, no, they, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be us because they wouldn't have the spirit of this planet. They would have the spirit of that planet. And so that would make them a different thing. Mm-hmm. So all my life, you know, ask questions, listen to stories. And so this was, when I was young, I was going to be uh, a native warrior, but uh, like everybody else that goes to college, you have one thing in mind and you pick, you know, 20 different uh, topics or how you're going to graduate. And in the end, I just loved um, cultural anthropology more than linguistics or physical anthropology. And so that was mostly what my degree is in, is in cultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. And so to me, a lot of my jobs have dealt with that. Even when I worked in Temple, we would go on to archaeological site and then we'd look at it and try to see like uh, what it, what we would interpret it, the, the history to be. And so uh, one of the things I remember was uh, we go to Painted Post and you go uh, – 17 here on the highway and go out to Painted Post and go south into Pennsylvania. There was an archaeological site there in which they found uh, a couple of longhouses and uh, turtle pits. And I had heard about the turtle pits and that we used to use them for sweats. And so one of the turtle pits, I'm about uh, 6'2 and right around 280 anyways, that turtle pit was so big that I could fit Twenty of my size guys into it, and so that was the first time I ever seen anything of that nature. And you know, talking to uh, to the elders, you know, not just in my community, but you know, Six Nations, which is in Canada, that's what they said. It well, it was a sweat, and that uh, people used to purify themselves. And uh, when they didn't use it for that, then they used it to store their food away and stuff. So, in the end. Uh, they were making a highway going through that area. And so we were able to preserve it. Um, uh, but now it has all this dirt that's over top of it. it, has a geo plate in case somebody in the future ever digs there, they'll at least know that something is important there and that uh, the highway is over it now. So I'm not worried about anybody getting at it, but we do have a, a diorama of uh that site and so it's cut into layers and so some people without reading the description they'll think well the bottom layer is a couple hundred years before the top layer and um, some of them will think well the poor Indians are in the little uh, hut and the more rich Indians are in the longhouses and we point out to them like no that was a hunting ground and then uh, a couple, you know, a hundred years later, you know, a couple families live there, and a couple hundred years later, then it becomes like a whole village, um, even to the point that it looked like it was a town, because uh, I wouldn't consider uh, a couple thousand people a village. I would consider that more of a town. Mm-hmm. So it was just interesting to see some of the way that they were uh, interacting where the posts are, because one of the posts was um, a little off. And so you could just tell that it was probably just a human error. Uh, we all make mistakes, and they uh, they probably just made a mistake there in that in that uh, section, and uh, we worked it out. And as we learned more about our longhouses, we realize now that 
our architectural design is different than European design. Like our longhouses are made for winter and the weight is distributed in the middle. So it's very unlikely for the roof to cave in. Where uh, when we moved into log cabins, um, it was more of a way that they could, um, uh, the roof could fall in because of the snow that we get here. So, there, you know, there's a lot of adaptability that was into our way of life and the environment that we were living. Even to the point where uh, there was a trail tree that wasn't uh, very far from that area. And so, I don't know if you, uh, listeners have ever heard of a trail tree, but a native trail tree is basically like a destination sign. My ancestors used to bend the trees in certain ways, and then they would know which way the path was. If there was a bump in the tree, you know, there was water on that side of the path or there was uh, sort of slits in it. You would know if there was like a sacred spot over there or you could just read the tree and be able to give you all the information that you needed. Man, it's so funny that you, you mentioned this today because I was just sharing yesterday an article about, so there's, there's a bit of controversy out here in Colorado about so-called um, Ute prayer trees. They call them, they were calling them prayer trees though, not trail trees. Basically, you know, unlike you guys, the Utes didn't have that same tradition of bending and shaping trees and things like that more because they were more, you know, constantly moving through the landscape and stuff like that. So they didn't, you know, spend time in one place tending to one tree and things like that. So there's there's somebody out here in Colorado who has been basically taking like he's he's proclaimed himself to be the expert on on Ute prayer trees and the tribes have been asking him to stop you know like this is not something that our tribe does you know this is something that that other tribes do and so it's just really interesting like that you that you mentioned this today just cuz it's really been at the the forefront of my mind you know just like that there's really like a an appropriation happening there and and something that the tribe's fighting against. Whereas like for you guys, that actually is something that um, is part of your tradition. So it's just a interesting juxtaposition hearing you, you talk about that. And I can include the, the article about the Utes fight in the show notes in case anyone's interested in, in learning more. Yeah. Well, what I like about it is that it shows that we were interacting with the environment, you know, that we weren't just being passive with the environment, you know, uh, just letting trees grow wherever. A lot of times, if you look at how the villages are, you'll look around the trees that are around the village now. Uh, Buff, uh, Buff State, their um, archaeological department has been looking at the type of trees around our villages, and they realize that a lot of the trees are hardwood. And so being hardwood, they're harder to burn. And so it has to be a way that uh, my ancestors just knew if they had those hardwoods around and, uh, you know, forest fire happens, it gives us more time to get away, you know, that there's just a lot of thought pattern that's going on and manipulating the environment, but also at the same time working with the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we're starting to get those things back and understanding how uh, our ancestors did stuff that um, 
we can appropriate into like our forestry or our conservation department within our nation and uh, bring to me those are traditions those are history that we can reclaim and so uh, whereas we reclaim that kind of history we reclaim some of our own sovereignty and uh, by uh, understanding who we are as a people and i guess on that note I'm definitely curious to learn more about this men's cultural and ritual language program that you were working on. It sounds like it it ties in to some of what you're you're just talking about, maybe. Yeah, um, the men's ceremony. We make sure that our all our traditions within the longhouse, which is like our spiritual gathering place, uh, is maintained. So there's certain speeches and. Uh, certain doings that we do in order to maintain to be a healthy person. So, like for me, I'm I was good at giving speeches. So I didn't always try to learn a speech. I, when I was there, I tried to learn songs because I'm not good at uh, songs. It was more challenging for me. So as I learned certain songs, I and mean, people realized that oh well, you know, he is learning something. If I gave a speech, they're like oh well. He's giving speeches before, um, right. but these speeches are like, like funeral speeches or like me and my wife, when we got married, we got uh, married uh, our own uh, native way. And so like part of what I did was I went and got a deer to show that I could provide for the family. And she used a uh, uh, cornwheel and put berries in there so that it would show that she would poodle uh, uh, for the children. And tending to the children, we had wedding baskets, and John Doe, um, John Doe is an elder within our community's English name is Clayton Logan. John Doe means something like a big tree in a certain spot. But he gave us our, he did our um, ceremony, anyways. And it's about a 45 minute speech about responsibilities to each other and to the community, and to our families. And, that's why some of the people like in uh, um, that's one of the things where because of um, some sort of misunderstanding or maybe because of Christianity trying to put some stuff down like she'll call me Haganti and I'll call her Haganti uh, and um, what it, it translates and into English is my old lady or my old man which doesn't sound right in English, but in our own native language, what we're saying is that her thoughts or my thoughts should be greater than our own generation and should be treated as elders. And so be, uh, it's almost like in English to be like a better half, but because Christianity didn't want to recognize our kind of marriage, uh, when we spoke of that way, they were like, well, that's not a real... Uh, a real marriage because it wasn't a Christian marriage. And so some of the stereotypes are prejudice, I guess, against us. Mm. Makes it sound that way that it's not the right thing. So when I worked at men's ceremony, that's what we looked at is how we can, you know, keep in contact with, a, you know, with the environment. And to us, like in our language, we don't have a word for religion. It's just the life. It's just the way you live your life as a, a human being. And so, like, the first thing that we're taught is, you know, uh, like how I introduce, you know, basically, I'm asking a question, you know, do you have peace within you or are you healthy? 
And if you're not healthy, then it's up to us to take care of each other and to get people at a good mind. And so that's why I had liked uh, being down there, just to keep myself in a good mind. Um, but I was asked by some of our uh, tribal uh, counselors, our uh, Santa Canadian counselors, um, uh, if I would uh, take this role as being the director of the museum because of making the new cultural center. Uh, since I was the first archivist um, of the Seneca Nation, uh, I had a, already a reputation of starting a program uh, new and uh, letting it uh, flourish. So, so the, I've had the honor of having starting this new building with the archives and with the museum. And so I see it from both points of view. And I'm just glad after uh, 40 years that we've had this, because uh, the museum, like I said, was built in 1977. And it was supposed to be only a temporary spot for five years. And within those five years, they were supposed to make a new building. And there's been several different attempts. I think we were the ninth architectural design that it finally happened. And so when you come in, into the museum, there are certain things that we do. Like uh, for us, life goes counterclockwise and death goes clockwise. And so when we're doing the exhibit, uh, the tours on the exhibit, we make sure that the path is uh, counterclockwise and going with life. Yeah. And so that's why we're calling it a cultural center. Uh, museums, a lot of times now for us here, we think of it as more just the past and not the future. Right. And so with the our exhibits, we start with the with our creation story, and then uh, the last exhibit is a projection onto the walls of what our uh, children in our community think uh, Seneca's will be like in forty to hundred years from now. And so they drew them all out, and so we have a projection on that wall of ten screens. And it shows uh, what the future of Seneca's will be. Oh, I love that. <laughs> well, it's more like a dream state, too. So even if the kids didn't draw everything, you know, realistically, it didn't matter. Right. You didn't pick anybody, you know, what they think is what's going to happen. You know, we wanted to acknowledge that. So within our time capsule, mm -hmm. um, because we did it in 40 years, we have a date on the time capsule saying, and 2058, 40 years from now, that they would open up that time capsule and see those pictures and other articles of what happened on the opening of this uh, new cultural center. Man, okay. On that note, <laughs> we are at our second break again. <laughs> so we will be right back, and then we are going to dig more into this museum. Okay. All right. See you in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, and we are back 
So, okay, there's so much, so many places to go with all of this, but I, the first thing that I want to talk about is something that you mentioned actually when we were on break off the air real quick, which was just about the process of developing a museum like this. You're talking about, you know, basically how do you design a museum, cultural center, I should say, uh, to represent you as a people. And this is something that Lyle and Susan and Marissa talked about on episode 10. They're, they're trying to tackle these very same issues with the Hopi Museum and Learning Center that they're trying to develop. So I would be curious, first of all, in hearing about what that process was like in, in figuring out how you wanted to um, do this entire cultural center and do it right so you so people felt like it really represented them but then also like what advice would you have for other tribes that are trying to build their own museums or um just other museums in general i guess oh as I, we were discussing a little bit uh i was the first uh Seneca Nation tribal archivist and so when i designed that i uh, there were no policies, there weren't no procedures, and I looked at what archives was because I don't like doing things that doesn't have anything to do with our language or outside our language. And so uh, as I kept looking at things, I, I realized that um, the, uh, the National Archives that people were trying to compare us to uh, started during or after the Civil War. And it was at the uh, garage next to the White House. And 150 years later, you know, they they developed what we know as the National Archives. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that helped me reshape the way I looked at everything within our own way of being and stuff. Uh, For example, within our uh, archives, we have things that are maybe uh, sacred to us or traditional to us. For example, we have uh, the dong song or the morning song. And I know with uh, some of my uh, colleagues that were non-native, they have a policy that, you know, information is always available. Well, for us, if somebody wanted to listen to the dong song and the morning song, they had to come in the morning. It's not an afternoon song. It's not a night song. Mm-hmm. And so some of my uh, uh, non-native colleagues, they were like, well, you have to open it up to everybody. You know, we have this policy. And they were talking about a records management policy of, you know, having it available to everybody. I said, well, the records management policy that you're citing is maybe 50 years old. I said, well, I said, Maybe it's a hundred years old. We'll go that far. It's it's not anything more than a hundred years old. And they agreed. Said so. You want me to change something that my people have been doing for millennia because of this <laughs> policy for a hundred years. And like, um, and so uh, it was just those kind of ways of looking at things from different points of view. And so I think this is where my cultural anthropology background comes into play, you know, to look at things in um, many different ways. And uh, that's what we're just doing with our museum is that we designed it or made it more 
Senecaized, I guess is the way to describe it. <laughs> I love that Senecaized. Because <laughs> uh, we made it our own. For example, we have uh, an NEA grant, um, a National Endowment of Arts grant for 3D printers. We have three 3D printers and one huge 3D printer. Well, we figured that we would just use that technology in order to do uh, cultural, uh, technological cultural camps. And so one of the things is um, we were looking at seeing like making a basket, but making the handle out of the 3D printer. You know, how can we take these tools that we have nowadays and apply them to old tools? Uh, reminds me of my uh, good friend, uh, Steve Corden, who's a counselor now. Uh, he was making a, a, a face a medicine mask, and he was using a chainsaw. And the anthropologist at the time was there was like, well, your ancestors wouldn't have used a chainsaw. And he looked at him and said, well, if there was a chainsaw around, they would have used it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the anthropologist looked at him and was like, um... Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, once, and so when I went around, you know, I tell people, like, you know, we don't have to make the building square, you know, we can make them curved. Like one of our well, uh, walls on the art museum is uh, curved just to make it my, our own way of um, architectural design. And so uh, when we looked at this building and looked at where we were putting everything, our current, or our past museum, I guess, was only 10,000 square feet. And our current museum now is 33,000 square feet. So it's three times bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that we had technological things in there to bring the kids in. Um, but at the same time, keep them going on with our traditions, you know, like uh, we might uh, take a log and pound the splints off the log. Uh, are we using a stone axe that my ancestors would have used a long time ago? No, we're using a metal axe, you know, more convenient. But at the same time, you know, our youth are learning, you know, that it's not easy to make a basket or make pottery. Mm-hmm. And that in order to do all these things that we need the whole uh, every generation in order to uh, do those things, you know, the usually the good pot makers are older people. Well, they can't go out and get the clay because they're too old to do that. So then they'll train somebody young on how to get the clay or what to get the clay or what kind of type of clay. And so things are just passed down through that, that way of knowing. Um, and so... It keeps the traditions more alive that way. And so that's why we were trying to go over the cultural center because we don't want people just feeling as though we're just of the past and we're only stuck in the past. And so my advice to, you know, my other Native uh, people is, you know, uh, look at how things that can be done, you know, but keep an inventive way of uh, in doing it, you know. That if we look at our customs and traditions, we do have science, we have philosophies. And if we can maintain those at the same time advancing, uh, to me, it's the best of both worlds. And it sounds like, I mean, you're talking about how your traditions take all of the generations. It sounds like 
you guys did that with the museum as well, basically with incorporating the kids into the future part and then um, looking at, you know, the, the traditions and stuff. What kind of engagement was there with the community during this this process of, of designing the museum? Um, there was a lot of engagement. A lot of the exhibits are uh, community projects. And so, uh, like, we did the Kidanya, the Thanksgiving address. And so we had, uh, did uh, workshops. Instead of just hiring one artist to do the beadwork, uh, we engaged people just to come in and make a, a, a leaf out of uh, the beads, the uh, plastic beads. Um, or we did like strawberries that's important to us. And uh, people made uh, felt strawberries. Um, or what was another? There were uh, quite a few different projects that we used anyways that was with the whole community. And so even now, like you were saying, with like the youth, I remember one of my friends, their nephew, who's nine years old, was telling his whole family, well, you got to go to the new museum because my stuff is in there. No. And that's what we wanted was, it's, <laughs> this is not just, somebody at the opening told me, oh, well, this is your building. And I said, no, this is not my building. I have the honor of tending to the building, but this is for our community and for our people. And all of our exhibits are made for our own people. And some people were telling me, like, oh, well, you have to make the exhibits for non-Native. And I said, no, I don't. That I'm making <laughs> yeah. it for our own people. And if our own people have pride in it, then the rest of the world will have pride. Which leads me to my next question. You mentioned at the beginning that also you you wanted this facility to be a facility not only for your own tribe, but for your neighboring tribes who also might not have the curation facility in order to do the the NAGPRA types of things that they, they want to do. Could you could you talk a little bit more about that aspect? Well, you know, uh, if we can help each other out, you know, we're going to help each other out. Uh, I mean, one of the exhibits we have is on the stars. And uh, one of the stars that makes us where we lived in the chosen spot by Canadagua was uh, the holder of the sky. But then when I look at Navajo uh, stories about how the Navajo and Juni got there, it was with Long Slash. Sash, sorry. And Long Slash is the same stars that uh, we talked about. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, and so uh, if we can help somebody and uh, put uh, some of their uh, things for them in our facilities until they have uh, their facilities to take care of that. My counselors uh, have already recommended some of that process yeah. just to help each other out, like I said. So, so yeah, we're looking at um, a couple of communities, you know, that are out, out west. It might not be as fortunate as to have this, but at the same time, Already, you know, a couple of different communities within the Haudenosaunee, within our own uh, nation, has uh, uh, wanted to come and look at our facilities in order to see how they can duplicate some of the things. Like, for example, uh, some of the things that we have getting back is like dead wampum. Dead wampum to us is wampum that's buried. And so looking at having a place where we bring the wampum belt, uh, wampum back, but 
maybe bury it in the ground within uh, a storage area or keeping it within the ground. And then that way we can bring it back, but still maintain who we are and looking at respecting what our elders had done or how we might use certain medicines or certain things. Um, that's a big opponent. Uh, some of the stuff that's been repatriated that I always, look, I always looked at, you know, um, I always thought that there should be some kind of warning label to people, whether it's within somebody's tradition is supposed to be for male or female or how did the people do it? Uh, I remember being at uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, uh, archaeologists had, um, or anthropologists had asked these Native people if they could use their song to bring the ancestors back. And they granted them the permission to do that. Well, he played the song, but he only played half of it. And I'm like, well, what does that do to the ancestors? Does that put them in? Like, play the whole song. <laughs> yes, <laughs> permission, but... Uh, it just made sense to me that they meant the whole thing. Right. Just, you know, um, but because he had permission, he just thought he could make it any way he wanted. And so uh, quite a few of us that were native there convinced him to play the whole song. And then I was much better with it until I said, well, what's the song to take them back? And he was like, oh, I didn't get that one. And I was like, okay, well. <laughs> It's <laughs> just um, the, it's just a way of different uh, ways of thinking, I guess. I mean, I'm not New York. Well, where my people are, you know, is in New York State, and so I went to the New York State Museum, and they had this picture of a very fierce uh, terrain. It was mountainous and stuff, and it was supposed to be from the early 1700s, and uh, beyond that uh, train, they said that in the caption, it said that uh, my ancestors said that there were unicorns on the other side of that mountain. And as soon as I saw it, I started laughing. And the person that was the museum director was like, why are you laughing? I was like, it was probably a joke. Like the person was probably coming around that was an explorer and was bothering everybody about unicorns. And they were just like being mean about it. They looked around and were like, I can get him to climb that mountain that it was the most rigorous mountain around or whatever. And the other ones are like, no, you can't. And then they said, well, go that way for the unicorns. Don't come back this way. And 400 years later, it's supposed to be the truth. And I was just like, it was just a joke. <laughs> oh, so it, I take it that nobody uh, from that museum talked to the tribe about how they would want to be represented. Uh, that's what we were there for. And it was very interesting. Oh, okay. um, because like one of the things that we did was we asked about um, our ancestors that they had had uh, and the human remains. And then they said, well, they needed to keep them for scientific purposes. And we mm -hmm. said, oh, okay. Well, when's the last time that you've done anything scientific with them? They said, "Oh, we had it," and we yeah. said, "Well, you've had our, you've had our ancestors' remains for a hundred years. Like, when's the deadline to say, like, okay, you've had them enough? If you haven't used them in a hundred years for anything for scientific purposes, what's the justification? You know, right? And right. then they're like, right. um, 
Hmm. And so over the years, I've learned to, you know, ask questions of that nature. Like, okay, you're using them from scientific purposes. Okay, when's the last time you did it? You know, or when's the future you're looking at? Or are you doing a grant now? And if they're not, then to me, it's not true then. Right, right. It's just more of a hypothetically, we might at some point in the future want to do something. So we just want to keep them because we want them. (laughs) I mean, it's not really, yeah, not really how NAGPRO works. No. So, and then, you know, my bio, you know, I had worked with NAGPRO in the the 90s and um, found out that, you know, some of our sacred things was always in Hawaii. And then it just dawned on me, like, oh, my goodness, if our stuff can be in Hawaii, it could be anywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. Being a young man of 21, I I just never thought about it in that way. I mean, I grew up on the territory here, and we didn't have a big community. We still don't have a big community, you know, um, uh, of, like, New York City or something like that, you know. So, and so when I got older and... Uh, had more resources, uh, finances, whatever you want to sell. I mean, I've traveled more and found more of the, the uh, country and more of the world than when I was young. You know, uh, when I was young, we went on vacation. That was just going over to the next reservation and visiting relatives. You know, my daughter we went to Disney World or you know Universal. That's vacation. So time, you know, they change, but. Uh, we we just have to adapt to the way that we look at it and uh, what it means to be native, you know, uh, I think is different in my daughter's age than it was in my age. You know, some people, when I was young, you know, they were uh, the headdresses like out west and not the gestorts that we wear. And, you know, so now we discuss that. Is that a tradition then, or is that just a custom, or what does that make that be? Because within that time period, that's what they did. So I'd be curious then, since you, and man, we got to wrap up already, but let me ask you this at least. So you started working on NAGPRA stuff in the 90s, and you're still, it sounds like, doing some work on, on NAGPRA today. Have you, what kind of change have you seen in that, you know, almost 30 years now, or, or do you feel like that there, there hasn't been a lot of progress made? Let me see. In some ways, I think there's been progress. Uh, it's opened up doors and conversations uh, that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the law. Uh, in other ways, I mean, it's hindered things, you know, uh, some of our sacred things, uh, like a mask, they had uh, medicine bundles on them. And so you hear reports of like museums taking off the medicine bundles and saying, well, this is not sacred. And so at a certain point, it was like, okay, well, we have to consider it all sacred then because we don't know who's tampered with what. You know, and then you decide, you know, then the uh, deciding. It's not one person deciding, it's uh, a multiple people deciding um, and having some conversations with the non-natives. 
what I noticed is that when we started actually having conversations and they're like, well, you have 30 days in order to get this report back to us. Uh, mm-hmm. and we had a meeting and I'm like, okay, there's like 300 of you sending me by myself reports mm-hmm. and I'm supposed to get them done in 30 days. That's not realistic. I mean, it's realistic for you, but that's not realistic for us. And then there, some of that has changed over the years because they realize, uh, or we realize that some of our stuff is out there that we just didn't realize how much was out there over the years. And yeah, so we, now we have to have conversations, you know, can we really tend to all this stuff that's out there? Or how do we tend to it, you know? And so in, in those ways, it's changed. Um, some of the ways that we deal with um, non-NATOs in these environments is that just because we disagree doesn't mean that we're unfriendly to each other. We're still friends at the end of the day, but uh, we still, uh, I believe, the ones I respect, I still respect. And the ones I didn't really respect, I still don't just, uh, I'm not mean to them. But <laughs> right, right. We don't have that. But to me, now that we have this new cultural center, uh, a lot of um, the non-natives, because of NAGPRA in the 90s and us knowing each other, they're more willing to give us things back. Just like uh, uh, New York State uh, just had the corn plant to Tomahawk Peace Pipe. Uh, somebody stole it 70 years ago, and somebody just returned it to them like within the, the last month. And because they heard about our new cultural center and everything that's going along with it, uh, they said they would like to return it back to us in uh, January of next year and have it uh, back home to us. And it wasn't for radio shows or podcasts like this. I don't know if they would have learned about our our new facility. So um this in alone, you know, to me will change the way some people think and how they interact with us. So I appreciate that, that you're giving me the opportunity to talk on your podcast. Yeah, of course. Well, and I guess final question. Um, and then if you want to, you know, give any information about people on visiting the cultural center, et cetera, then you can finish out with that as well. But what would be the one thing that you would want people to take away from the cultural center, from the museum, from this episode, whatever, if people only took away one thing, like, you know, that other podcast, what what would you want that to be? That we're human beings and that we're free, you know? Um, Cause even today, somebody came to me and their school had a native mascot. And she's like, well, our Indians. And I was like, well, hold on. What do you mean by our Indians? Like you you make it sound as though we're your possession or we're your slaves or something. And she's like, well, that's not what I mean. And I'm like, but that's kind of language that you're putting us in. You don't really see us as uh, a true human being able to change and to adapt and uh, just stereotyping us one way. So people that come through our uh, cultural center, our new museum, that's what I hope they take away is that just because I have shoes on and I don't have always feathers on, 
doesn't make me less or more native. I'm still native without them. Uh, what makes me native is in my hearts and um, the way I present myself. And I choose to speak English because it's, it's easier at this point instead of speaking our native language for the viewer. So, uh, and so that's why I want them to take away with, and that's why we ended the tour in the future. Once you walk out those doors, it's up to you to decide how you want to interact with us because you're in the future. Right. Not just, you know, tribes aren't just in the past. But, man, that's really sad that the bar has to be so low for, you know what I mean? Like that, um, and I, I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but, you know, even in Tucson, I for one of my classes in college gave tours of the Arizona state museum and Tucson is a city with reservations literally within the city. Yeah. Um, and then all around it. And it would be the same thing. Like people would be like, the kids would be like, Oh, we're going back in time. Um, so it's, you know, even in a city like Tucson where there's, I mean, I don't know how you can miss it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and yet still there's still this perception. So it's, it's sad that that's, that has to be like the goal of the museum, that it has to be that low um, just because of, of the surrounding, you know, society. That's, that's really well, even bad. within our own community, you know, changing how we do certain things. Uh, I talked to one of uh, my cousins anyways, and, I, uh, we're having a 400 seat amphitheater in the back that's outside. And I said, well, do you want to play? Cause he, uh, he's in a band that does native blues. And he's like, well, I don't sing Indian songs. And I said, well, you Indian, right? And he said, yeah. I said, you sing, right? He said, yeah, I sing. I said, well, it must be Indian songs then it's Indian mm -hmm. music. Yeah. You know? yep. And he was like, oh yeah, it is Indian music, you know? So, <laughs> But that's the thing with having uh, a living cultural center that, yes, it, it might not be our social songs or something that we did in the 1600s, but it's still pertaining to our community, the songs that he does in, with the native blues. To me, that's even changing within our own perception of, you know, who we are and stuff. Right, right. As opposed to the outside, like, dance, Indian dance, you know? Yeah. <laughs> God. Okay. So I, you mentioned that there's going to be a new website for the museum. So we will have the, once by the time this launches, we can have that in the show notes, but is there any other information that you would want people to have about the museum, like how to visit or anything like that? Uh, well, we're on Facebook. So just look for Seneca Iroquois National Museum uh, and one of the reasons I mentioned that is that uh, with uh, we do some of our uh, lecture series and we record them and then put them onto Facebook. And so hmm. whether you're in Tucson or whether you're in Florida, uh, we have Seneca's, our relatives all over the, the United States or all over the world, and they can look and interact with us on Facebook that way. Um, and so we, um, what is it, FaceTime uh, some of our lecture series 
And so as the lecture series is going on, uh, you can type in your questions and we, we can answer them. With the old museum, we didn't have the five the objects to do that, but with the new new building in a couple months here, we're gonna start our lecture series, our fall lecture series. And then we'll do the spring lecture series. So I'm looking forward to actually having fiber optics in order to get these things out and so the wiring that we had. So look us for us anyways in those uh, uh, avenues. Anyway. Okay. And we can include the, the Facebook page on the show notes as well. All right. Any any other way or... Um, the, the main main method that you want people to go for. That's the main method right now. I got a, okay. I got the youth looking at other stuff for us, but uh, nice. All right. Well, thank you again for for coming on and and sharing with all of us. We appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate being here. And in our language, we say it's Kongi. You know, till we see each other again. Till we see each other again. This is Jessica just jumping back in here real quick just to remind everybody that the fundraiser that Lyle and I talked about in our updates episode, episode 19.1 for Living Heritage Research Council, our new nonprofit, it ends next Tuesday, the 28th. So right when you hear this episode, if you wouldn't mind going to www.custominc.com slash fundraising slash living heritage and getting a shirt with Lyle's sweet logo on it. And then if you are more interested in our raffle, then you can go to www.livingheritage.net slash take hyphen action. And that'll take you to the donate page for Living Heritage Research Council. And for every $10 that people donate, they are entered to win jewelry by Lyle himself. It's a, a really cool pendant that we'll put in the show notes, as well as a canvas framed photograph by Neil Savage, that's my dad, or a metal printed uh, photograph from research associate Sean Kelly, among other things like a Living Heritage Research Council pint glass with the logo that Lyle designed on it. So again, I hope that you will take a moment to support us by donating at one of those two places this week and getting either a shirt or being entered to win in our raffle. So again, that's custominc.com slash fundraising slash livingheritage or livingheritage.net slash take hyphen action. Or if it is already past the 28th, well, obviously we're always happy to take a donation at our website, but you can also sign up for our newsletter by going to livingheritage.net to hear what we're up to, or going to Facebook and going to at Living Heritage Research Council, and that's our Facebook page, and keeping up with what we're doing there. So please, yeah, help support us. And we're really excited to see where we're going and where the the tribes take us with what they'd like to do in the future. So thanks again. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I will speak to you all soon. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com 
forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.